0: Welcome
1: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're bringing you a special conversation with another
2: host in our network. That's right. We're going to be talking to Katie Golden. She's the host of Creature Feature. And, uh, yeah, this is just a fun opportunity for us to support a new science show in our general network uh, and chat with just a, a very knowledgeable host. Yeah, Creature Feature is a, is a great new show. Katie knows a lot about animals
1: and biology and evolution and psychology. And, uh, and so we, we wanted our
2: listeners to go check out that show, get into that too. I think it'll be right up your alley. Yeah, she chats with guests about uh, you know cu- curious uh, tidbits uh, regarding uh, uh, animal biology, animal behavior, and it publishes every Wednesday. It's kind of sandwiched in between Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes like that.
1: Right. For all those people who are like, where can I get more leeches and bat sex between my two weekly uh, episodes of stuff to blow your mind? This is where you
2: go. All right. We're, we're going to play a trailer before we jump into our interview with Katie. Uh, and I also just want to let everybody know if you want to check this out uh, online, the website for Creature Feature is creaturefeaturepod.com. All right. Let's have a listen to that trailer.
0: Humanity has spent a long time distancing ourselves from the animal kingdom. We wear clothes over our nakedness, use the stock market, and go to the bathroom in specially designated areas. But if you take a closer look at the animal kingdom, you'll find bloodbaths and treachery that make Game of Thrones seem like a dumb show for babies. I'm Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology at Harvard. And I pretend to be a bird on Twitter, and my new podcast, Creature Feature, brings you tales of love, murder, sex, betrayal, and deception, in the lives of both animals and humans. We ask the questions, what is going on in the brains of people who suffer the delusion that they're a living corpse? How does a romantic relationship work out between a man and a car? What do you do when you find out your lover wants to move in, to your body? On Creature Feature, we view nature and man from a new perspective. Each episode asking a comedian to get inside the minds of animals so we can explore the startling connections to human psychology. Join us every Wednesday, starting on Halloween. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your sick auditory kicks.
2: All right, well, let's go ahead and uh, have a chat with Katie Golden, host of Creature Feature. Welcome to stuff to blow your mind.
0: Hey, great to be here.
1: Could you introduce yourself to the uh, audience out there?
0: Yeah, so I'm Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology at Harvard, and I run the Twitter account Pro Bird Rights, where I pretend to be a bird activist, and <laughs> I host the new show from How Stuff Works called Creature Feature, where we take a uh, an animal's eye view at Human behavior in a human's eye view, looking at animal behavior.
2: So I love this particular angle because, yeah, we can't help but uh, but look at the animal world. And we, on one level, we can't help but see them as, as little or large versions of ourselves. And then we g- can freak out a bit when they do something that is totally inhuman,
0: yeah, I just think it's it's interesting because there's either the tendency to either over anthropomorphize or under anthropomorphize. So um, we'll see an animal behavior that we think, oh, they're feeling a certain way. Like um, if an insect is uh, is stalking something, like like the bullet spider likes to capture its prey by swinging a piece of of its web with this sticky bolus on the end, which is like this, this, uh, bulb that, uh, you know, it's, it's fashioned after it's kind of like that weapon, which is like a string with those two heavy weights and then you swing it and you capture your prey. And then that's what the bolus spider does. So when you're watching him do that, you're thinking, oh, he's thinking, oh, here we go. Gonna try to get this fly. And oh, shoot, I missed. <laughs> and then he looks disappointed, but of course it's a spider. So it's very unlikely it, Feels things like disappointment. But on the other hand, I feel like uh, more intelligent animals, like especially dogs um, who have co-evolved with us and chimpanzees and other primates and uh, uh, sea mammals that are pretty complex do actually feel um, emotions and it, it, it is reasonable to attribute human-esque feelings to them. And uh, so I think that's really interesting.
1: I think one of the reasons that the whole, uh, like, human pretending to be an animal on Twitter, one of the reasons that is so interesting is because it tends to tell us more about, like, humans and the nature of social media than it does about animals.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so one thing is – I find birds to be innately funny because they seem so self-absorbed. If you watch them, <laughs> I used to own a couple of parakeets. I've been an avid bird watcher since I was a toddler, really. My mom used to say I would chase birds and get really disappointed because they wouldn't make friends with me. So I've always had an interest in birds and they just, they're, they, the way they carry themselves is like, It's with such arrogance and with such self-confidence and the little head bob that they do and the preening and the fluffing up. And uh, I feel like they kind of, I think when our relationship with social media is at times really great. It can be used for wonderful things, but often it's very egotistical, very self-indulgent. And so that's why I feel like a bird is a great character to have on Twitter and social media because that like self preening uh just comes so naturally to birds and it's really fun to explore the kinds of self-centeredness that I think we we all have to a certain extent where everything is about us we're uncomfortable when we're talking about things that aren't about us and uh so it's it's just fun to explore that from a little a cute little bird
2: another thing I love about um human contemplations of the animal uh, it comes down to these sort of folk ideas that we have uh, about like say what, what certainly what our pets are but also regarding uh, things like the squirrel uh, this was something that we we talked about on, on our show recently about uh, Getting down into the, uh, the meat-eating habits of the, of the squirrel and also some of the ideas about squirrel predation, about not just eating uh, – uh, you know, not just scavenging for meat but actively pursuing prey at least in certain, certain circumstances. And it really throws our sort of folk mentality for what this animal is out the window. And, and we either have to embrace or run from this, this new idea that the science gives us.
0: Yeah. So that's really interesting. Um, When I was in school, I did this study that made me seem really weird amongst my peers because uh, what we had to do is go out there with our clipboards and study the squirrels on campus. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you're just sitting there watching a squirrel eating nuts for hours. (laughs) Um, And one thing, they're so highly programmed to get maximum calories. So If they find a nut that has a hole in it, they're going to eat it immediately because they have figured out uh, that that hole means that there's a larva in there for a a type of moth that if they just bury it, that larva is going to eat the meat of the nut. Uh, And if they eat it now, they get that extra protein, that the the meat of the insect. In addition to the meat of the acorn, but if they bury it, they don't get anything. So they've learned to hedge their bets there and eat it immediately. Whereas pristine nuts, they uh, will bury and save for later. So uh, they're extremely opportunistic, and um, I I don't find it surprising that they actively go after meat because they're just so they they require so much caloric intake that they will do what they can. And I think that's kind of an interesting. Um, I mean, it's this is not they aren't actually the link evolutionarily, but you can kind of see how that sort of shrew-like mammal can be a link, but from uh, herbivore and insectivore to uh, the omnivorous um, mammals that that are like badgers and uh, ferrets and so on that that can evolve from those more harmless seeming mammals.
1: Oh, absolutely. I love how the the squirrel carnivory and squirrel predation thing reveals that there's – just you know, like people think – I mean people in places where squirrels are common think they know everything there is to know about squirrels just by looking out the back window or something. Because you see them all the time and then when you suddenly become aware that they're doing these bloody things uh, – not all the time, but sometimes they're doing these bloody things that you had no idea about. It sort of makes you realize that, that there's so much to nature that – you are completely blind to even when you think you're looking at it a lot.
0: Yeah, it's sort of that weird shock moment you get when you see like a heron with a rabbit or a, a mammal like in its mouth. Mm-hmm. And you're like, whoa, that bird is – because like we think of – when we think of birds of prey, we think of raptors. So hawks, eagles, ospreys, the ones with the – you know, the menacing looking ones. Herons look beautiful and elegant like – you know these these exquisite, pretty creatures, but they'll they'll eat a gopher for sure.
1: <laughs> I think we were talking about the example. It's it's in one of the David Attenborough documentaries of the these ho- horrible sights of uh, pelicans just gobbling up baby birds, just oh. cramming them <laughs> into their beaks and their little wings and feet sticking out all over the place,
0: eating them like popcorn. Yeah, That's so funny. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh yeah, I mean they got a lot of space in those beaks, might as well fill it up with baby birds.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean a lot of it a lot of it, especially these these uh, acts of predation, they do come down to the the, the raw economy of of life. I mean, you, you see it especially in uh, examples of say cannibalism um and uh, and also uh, we've talked a bit about this on the show with uh, coprophagia, uh the, the consumption yeah. of uh, of poop uh which of yeah. which once you boil away boil it down you take away so many of the human complications associated with the topic you're like well that makes sense for an animal
0: yeah you're you're being efficient you're recycling food digesting it and then saving it so a lot for a lot of animals it's also like the special poops that aren't really yes. poop they're mm-hmm. like food poop yeah uh specifically like in guinea pigs and wombats and stuff they make the little food poops
1: yeah the, the night um, poops yeah yeah
0: yeah and also with the cannibalism, I think it can be really counterintuitive. So like filial cannibalism um, may seem like, well, why would you do that? You're you're going to be an evolutionary dead end. Uh, but with fish, um, when they practice uh, eating their own babies, um, they're actually picking out the ones that are the least fit, so the slowest to develop. And then that way they can spend all their time investing in the baby fish that are most likely to mature to adulthood. So they're, um, they're both benefiting from the extra nutrition from eating their babies and then also the time um, focused on uh, the most – likely to succeed so it's this very cruel capitalist uh, like economic um, cost benefits analysis that these fish do they don't really have any sentiment for their own offspring
1: going all in on the best
0: ones exactly yeah doesn't help that they're called fries, which sounds delicious. <laughs> Baby fish are called fries. <laughs>
1: so, uh, so just yesterday I was listening to uh, a couple recent episodes of your show, which I, I, I must say I really enjoyed. Uh, I was listening to the ones about animals who are worst at sex. And uh, there, there was one that we've talked about on the show before that I really thought might come up. But, but uh, y'all didn't mention, and it's the, the male nursery web spider. Do you, do you know about this one?
0: Tell me a little more about it
1: the it's the one that so they bring nuptial gifts uh, in order yes. to yeah to woo the female spiders. the males bring like a package that's supposed to be a mm-hmm. food item wrapped in silk but the the yeah. way that the bad gift giving comes in is that a lot of them try to pass off a insect husk that they have already drained yeah. of all the delicious <laughs> fluids, or, or they like just a little.
0: Or like a little twig. Yeah, yeah, just like
1: (laughs) nothing, and they're they're trying to cheat, and uh, such dirtbags.
0: It's – yeah, so I've actually – I have heard of this, and I've done a little bit of reading about it, and it's it's so interesting because they'll – do a really elaborate wrapping job, so it's as if someone yes. hands you this beautifully wrapped gift with bows and ribbons and spangles, and then uh, it takes you like you it takes you a long time to unwrap it. And as you're unwrapping it, they're like making the moves on you, uh-huh. and like by the time you open the gift and it's like a rock they've already copulated with you and then you're like hey get back here but then they're they're running off laughing
1: i think we did read a study i'm just uh, off my memory i think we read a study when we talked about this that uh found that the ones who brought bad gifts were more likely to be the victims of sexual cannibalism afterwards
0: that's right so like i mean it makes sense too so if you've brought a, you're, you're taking a big risk there because while you are getting rid of the cost of hunting for a piece of food, um, once they open it and nothing's there, they're going to go to prey mode because, or or predator mode mode because they don't have a snack. So, you know, they're like, oh, hey, well, there's a snack over there that was just having sex with me. So I'll eat that.
1: (laughs) Uh, do you, do you have a favorite example that you want to, uh, Tell uh, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind crowd about from the uh, Bad at Sex episode?
0: Well, I think my favorite is um, the uh, the nudibranch uh, having uh, disposable uh, penises. Oh, because, yes. Because um, it's really interesting. So uh, they will have – they'll copulate and then after copulation they'll just shed their penis and um, – and oh, uh, by the way, branches are these really interesting. They look like um, uh, they're a marine animal that looks like a sort of beautiful <laughs> snail or slug with all these <laughs> colors, and they're they're pretty neat looking. Um, and so uh, it'll once it sheds. The penis it grows one back within twenty four hours because it actually has this big coil of um, of genital material uh, inside of its body, and so it's like a fruit by the foot that just kind of like <laughs> um, uh, keeps coming out. And the reason it does this, it, it actually has a really good reason. So it's to basically ensure that when it copulates, it's Give Like, it's all fresh um, uh, sperm material. So it's all its own sperm material. And it, it's able to, um, it, it's like, decreases the chance that it's going to get uh, sperm from a previous copulation with the uh, other neuter branch on its penis. And then if it sheds it and puts a new one in, then it's like guaranteed that that this is going to be all its own genetic material, and it's like the Lysol wipe uh, method of mating.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking uh, when I was listening to that of like those uh, things where you tear a ticket off at the the deli counter or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Number 42, servicing number 42.
1: (laughs) These are beautiful creatures, though. I was just looking at images of them. They look kind of like 80s glam rock slugs.
0: They really do. Um, they, they, and there's so many different kinds. Some of them look like dragons. Some of them look like a scrunchie from the 80s, like you were saying. They're, uh, they're beautiful animals. They're also hermaphrodites. So uh, they, they have the capability of having both uh, sexual organs, which is really interesting.
1: All right. We need to take a quick break, but we will be right back with more of our conversation with Katie
2: all right we're back now on creature feature it's, it's of course not only just about animals it's also about the, the guests that you have on to discuss uh, these animals uh so each episode has a particular guest and a particular uh th- theme or topic in place how do you go about putting those two together like w- which comes first uh the, the guest or the topic
0: well, so I'll write – it's usually the topic first, so I'll write my notes, and then I kind of try to think about guess who might fit best with that topic. So, for instance, I was really interested in looking at vices in um, uh, in the animal world, so drug use, drinking, birds who get drunk, uh, animals who seek out natural highs <laughs> – um, And so the guest I chose, Robert Evans, has written a book on the history of vice, and he talks a little bit about the evolutionary history of uh, getting drunk. And uh, so he was perfect for that episode, also because he's tried out some really interesting drugs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he, he of course, is also the host of uh, Behind the Bastards. That's right. That's right. It's a
0: great podcast. Yeah,
2: indeed. So earlier you mentioned uh, that when you were a child, you were not able to actually make friends with birds. And uh, on the the show, on Creature Feature, you interview humans. But if you could have one bird on the show as a guest and you could actually speak to that bird and ask mm. it questions, uh, which bird species would you choose?
0: Oh, that's a really good question. I think uh, any species of parasitic birds, so cuckoos or cowbirds mm. or honeyguides, uh, because they're so sneaky. <laughs> um For those of you who don't know, uh, cuckoos will uh, lay their eggs in the nests of host species uh, and trick them into raising their own young. And they use a lot of different strategies, like sometimes the baby chicks have voices that sound like a bunch of baby birds. So then the host species feels compelled to feed it way more food than they would normally feed a single baby bird. They also push out the babies from the nests, um, and when will kill the host species' real babies. Um, and sometimes the cuckoo parents will disguise themselves as raptors, so have the uh, have stripes on their bellies and curved beaks that will look make them look like predatory birds. Um, and they're so devious that I feel like it would be. They would be really interesting to interview like like interviewing a criminal or something where <laughs> yeah. it's just like like why why do you do this? And um uh like how how could you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so like a hard hitting sixty minutes style interview. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, like Frost v Nixon, like <laughs> me versus Birdston. <laughs>
1: Like, why did they always keep going back into the prison to interview Charles Manson again? It's like, is he going <laughs> to yeah. have something good to say this time?
0: <laughs> yeah, like a true bird crime podcast. Where, oh, we're, there you go. Yeah, like, like why do you do these crimes, birds? <laughs> Stop it.
1: So I, I've got another question along those lines. I, I assume you have the, the same kind of uh, – attitude in general toward animal life that we do, which is like we try not to have negative emotions about animal behaviors and, and always just like have a sense of wonder about the natural world and, and positive feelings about animals, even when they do things that if humans did them, we would find them disgusting. But is there an animal that you find you, you can't separate your emotional reaction from? Like there's just some animal that you can't help but feel contempt for, even though you, you know you shouldn't?
0: Yeah, so I think it's interesting because a lot of animals that normally you would feel disgust for, like spiders, or even even things like parasitic wasps that are really disgusting, I'm, I'm too interested in to find truly disgusting. So uh, I think, in all honesty, even though I understand that, like that cockroaches and then other pests and, and things like parasites, so when my dog gets fleas or a tick, or when she was a puppy, she had roundworm, as a lot of puppies have. The disgust I feel for those kinds of insects is too much for me to overcome because, while well, I find parasites actually really fascinating when it's affecting my dog, who I love. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. I, I just feel so angry. So when I would capture a tick, I would be like cursing at it and and be like you know you messed up now buddy because <laughs> you messed with the wrong dog um, and it's really the only time that I because like I don't I don't like to kill spiders that are in my house so like I'll I'll capture them and release them outside and and give them like a little snack a tiny sandwich to take with them because <laughs> uh, I care about them but like Hell finding yeah. a tick yeah finding like fleas I. I really get so angry that I, I have to kill them because it's like, how dare you hurt my dog? What did she ever do to you?
2: Well, there, these are the animals that are still the enemy. I mean, it's you can't yeah. look mosquitoes at mosquitoes and ticks, mosquitoes, ticks, yeah. things like guinea worm. I mean, these these yeah. things are are still enemies of humanity. If if there's
1: anything right. that truly deserves our hatred and contempt in the animal world, I think that's probably it.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I can't even though find my way to hating like rats. Cause uh, I mean, I'm afraid of them. I don't want them in my house, but once one got in my heating vent and like lived there for Ooh. a while and I kind of half heartedly put some traps in there because mm-hmm. it's like, well, I can't have this rat in here, you know, pooping in my and where the air comes in, but <laughs> um, it, and a trap went off and I felt kind of like, uh-huh. Oh, that's. I'm sad. I'm I'm relieved, but sad. I feel bad that I killed a rat. And then I opened up the vent and there was the trap with like a tuft of hair in it. Oh, and the rat no. was nowhere to be found. <laughs> and I was like, at that point, I was like, eh, you've deserved it, buddy. You've yeah. deserved to survive. So I didn't mess with it anymore. Eventually it went away, but it was just like, you know, I just had this rat living in my vent. It's like, oh, there's Mr. Wiggles doing his thing.
2: I, I find that I have complex emotions regarding like rats and mice and, and so forth in our urban environments because I, I i on one level i'm like you're rat you're not supposed to be here but then i have and by i i mean you know humans we've done so much to uh unbalance the environment by building a house here by having all these uh, these these artificial food sources in the area uh it's really on us that that they're here at all anyway yeah. uh, and so then i end up feeling guilty for for having to put out the traps even though they're the ones that are breaking into my home.
0: Right, it, it's not to them it's not our our homes. It's like this is their natural environment because they've uh learned to they've learned to survive in human environment and that's so interesting because for most animals when humans move in they just die off or move out. And for the animals that can actually adapt to human society and thrive, we hate. We hate them for Mm -hmm. being able to do that. We resent them for invading our spaces, even though, you know, if anything, we're the invaders that are encroaching on most animal territory and typically just... Wreaking havoc and wiping them out, and then we have these these scant few hero animals that are able to live with us, and then we're, we're we have the gall to hate them for it.
1: Yeah, hating a hating a rat for getting into your pasta boxes or whatever is almost like hating a dog for loving you. you know, it's just like it's what we made them do.
0: Right, right. They co-evolved with us uh over thousands and thousands of years, dogs and rats, and somehow rats are the bad guys.
1: <laughs> you know, we actually talked about this in a couple of episodes we did um earlier this year about the idea of urban evolution, ways that animals are adapting to urban landscapes and there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on with animals in urban spaces like uh the idea that in some cases uh, that urban spaces might be selecting for personality traits in animals like neophilia, where, like, uh, a, raccoon, a raccoon has a better chance of surviving in a city if it's the kind of raccoon with a personality that wants to approach unfamiliar objects rather than regard them with caution.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a, it's very interesting because you can take a, an animal that is feral and over, you know, just – a few generations start to find surprisingly uh tame traits so there you know that experiment with um the uh silver foxes in russia yeah. where yes. uh they were breeding them for they're, they're testing to see if they could uh, breed in these more tame traits and Um, Over, I mean, it was like a a couple of decades, but uh, just a few, like several generations of these foxes, they would do the ones that had that neophilia where it's not that they were fearful of humans or aggressive towards humans, but sort of politely interested in humans. And then they kept uh, selecting those foxes and then they started having patchy fur, like having spots and patches like dogs do on their coats. And then their the cartilage in their ears uh, became softer, and so they would have ears that would fold down uh, like in dogs. So it's really interesting to see how those tame characteristics that we see in dogs have some – there must be some shared genetic uh, links where some – the genes responsible for a more – curious, tame personality can also be linked to something just superficial, like ear cartilage. Uh, So I, I think that's really, I wonder if raccoons had enough generations of these tame, more curious raccoons, if they would start to, you know, like look cuter in some way. Like. Oh,
1: we actually <laughs> hypothesized that in the episode. We were like, I, I really? wonder if over many generations, city-dwelling animals will tend
2: to become cuter. Well, raccoons kind of have a leg up on the situation because they are already pretty cute. I mean, Yeah. Really. Have
0: you seen the video of the raccoon trying to wash cotton candy?
2: No.
1: Yes. Oh, I haven't oh it's seen this. so sad. Please just describe it's it. It's heartbreaking.
0: It's the human condition. It's a modern-day Sisyphus because – the rat, the sorry, the raccoon has this piece of cotton candy. It's given, and so because it's a raccoon and they like to wash their food because they're so fastidious, that he went into the the river and tried to wash it, and it <laughs> dissolved. And he's like, "What is this? What is this witchcraft?" And <laughs> he gets a new piece of cotton candy, but does the same thing, and he doesn't learn. Oh, I know, poor baby.
2: So Katie, uh we t- again we talk a lot about biology on the show and one of our favorite topics as well is is monsters, both in terms of the biological uh, hybridity that is often on display with them and because no matter how bizarre the monster uh, no, no matter how weird the creature in a you know science fiction uh, uh, film happens to be, nature usually has it beat for weirdness. So we were wondering, do you have any favorite monsters or film or fiction that invoke real-world biology in some way, shape, or form?
0: Mm. Yeah, actually, I do. So uh, do you know that video game, The Last of Us? Oh, yeah. So they have the – I guess the the monsters in the game are the the people that have been infected with this zombie esque virus, um, but it's not. It's actually sorry, it's not a virus at all. Um, it's a fungus, so it's called Cordyceps in the game, and it's really cool because I think the game designers were paying attention to actual evolutionary biology because uh, Cordyceps is a type of fungus that does in fact. Infect the brains of insects. So, in the game, this fungus uh, creates spores that you'll breathe in, and it'll affect infect your brain, causing you to be aggressive. Um, and then some of the later monsters are have this like really creepy overgrowth of fungus, just like sprouting out of their heads and growing over their bodies. Um, and, in fact, like uh, cordyceps and Real life, this fungus will uh, grow, sprout out of the heads of ants and other insects, and cause them to kind of go a little kooky. So they uh, will uh, leave the. They'll either be carried off by fellow ants who are like, "Oh, this is a this is a zombie ant," so they'll carry it off. And the, those ants that actually carry the infected ant will go on a suicide mission because they're like, "Well." We're going to get infected too, so we don't want to risk the rest of the colony, um, which is also very kind of like a trope from um, zombie movies. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but so the the infected ant, once it's off on its own and it's in the final stages of this infection, it will uh, have this this like instinct to to climb up a, a either a plant stalk or up a branch. As high as it can, and then cl- bite down on it. Do this like death grip, a literal death grip, because it dies, and then the fungus sprouts out of its head, and then it will produce spores that will spread and hopefully infect another insect. So it's controlled this insect to become like an incubator for more spores, just like in the in the Last of Us, which I I think it's really one of my favorite. I know it's a video game, but it's like, to me, beats a lot of the zombie movies or zombie genre because it's so cool and how carefully they constructed this zombie scenario.
1: I'm not a big gamer, but I've played that game multiple times. I think it's really excellent, and I love the mythology there.
2: It reminds me a little bit of of a 1963 Toho movie from Japan called Matango. Uh, not in a mm. way where I think there's actually any connective tissue between the films. And met- I don't think mentango has a lot of science in it. But it's got mushroom it monsters. It has mushroom monsters. And like the mushroom spores turn uh, humans into like into gradually more mushroomy creatures.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I that's mean, so cool.
1: One of the things that's so fascinating about stuff like the, the cordyceps parasite though is the specificity of the behaviors that it – generates you know like you can imagine uh, very it it feels more natural to say okay you could get some kind of parasite that would have a very very broad kind of effect on your behavior like uh, maybe the way uh, oh what's uh, the, the toxoplasma one mm-hmm, the idea yes. that yeah. it that it uh toxoplasma toxoplasma gondi i think it's called that it uh it reduces the uh, the fear and caution and inhibitions in mice so that they're more likely to go out and be eaten by a cat and it increases their attraction to the, what, the smell of cat urine or yes. something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. There's a lesion uh, between the parts of the brain responsible for arousal and uh, fear. Yeah. And so it it it's like it, it actually rewires their brain so they associate that that fear response from the smell of cat urine with a arousal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like the uh, the excitation part of anxiety without the being repelled part of anxiety.
0: Right, uh, right.
1: But, uh, but that's easier for me to just internalize and understand because it seems like that's actually a very broad and kind of easy change to make to the brain in a way. It's fascinating the specificity of the ant behaviors that are created by the parasite in the co- case of cordyceps
0: yeah and there's other other um examples of that so the parasitoid wasp will infect orb weaver spiders um with their larva so the 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 wasp will attack the orb weaver spider and then lay its larva uh either uh inside of the the spider or just on top of the spider and it clings to the spider and um it makes it do what seems like this really specific behavior. So instead of weaving its normal pretty web, it will start weaving like this cocoon, an extra strong cocoon that will eventually become sort of this cradle for the parasite's offspring, um, so that it can be it can safely develop. And kind of in, to twist the knife, the the larva will eventually eat the host spider. And just discard its carcass, uh, and so it's it's really interesting because it's hard to imagine how is this larva controlling the brain of this spider so that it weaves its it, it a cocoon that seems so specific, so detailed. And what researchers have found is it it there's a hormone, a chemical that the larva produces that is actually associated with the orb weavers spiders, one of its molting stages. So when it's molting, it wants to create a cocoon uh, made out of these especially strong fibers. And they're also, um, they they uh, have this sort of ultraviolet uh, light so that other insects won't fly into it while it's molting. Uh, and that protects it when it's vulnerable. So it, hi, the larva hijacks the orb weaver and makes it think it's molting, but it's even stronger than um, normally. So it's like it, it's pumping it full of this chemical that it it's almost goes into this super molting stage where it creates an extra safe and protective cocoon that eventually the parasite will use uh, at the expense of the poor little spider.
1: That's fascinating. I I guess what it really means is that a lot of the behaviors we think of as very specific and very complex are actually just much easier to trigger by exploiting existing hormones and circuitry and stuff than we would think.
0: Yeah, and I think that's why you find it in insects so much because they have, while they do have very complex behavior, their brains are a great deal smaller and I think easier to uh, reprogram and I mean the same thing with uh, rats i th- I think that it would be a lot more difficult, say, to reprogram a primate to do a very specific behavior, although you you could argue that with rabies, the yeah. some of the mm-hmm. behaviors like aggression and excessive drooling and hydrophobia are all uh, beneficial for the rabies virus to spread. So so you know, it is it can't happen
2: all right hold that thought because we're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of this interview okay we're back all right katie one question that we we have frequently asked guests on the show especially if they have any uh, uh interest in biology at all is uh, is this uh, what is your favorite dinosaur or prehistoric creature
0: ah oh, that's a really good question uh I, I would have to say Archaeopteryx because mm-hmm. it's the predecessor to birds. <laughs> it's uh, that that first gliding dinosaur that, uh, and it's so it's really interesting to see that transition from um, the the kind of raptor esque dinosaurs that had no no interest no need to fly. And then the the Archaeopteryx couldn't fly exactly, but it did glide. So it would kind of climb up a tree and then really clumsily glide from one tree to the other. And I I just think that's, it's so cool to me how flight has independently evolved uh, in so many different species that you just never expect. So uh, you have flying squirrels, which is sort of like the Archaeopteryx of animals because they're, they do the same thing where they kind of have uh, developed that gliding um, ability. And then uh, obviously there's also bats uh, who have developed that more, a little more um, uh, efficiently. And uh, in insects flight evolved from actually like their wings sprouted from their lungs tissue and, so you you see, like with dragonflies, their uh, wings are very close to where their their gills and lungs are, and uh, it's it's just I find it so cool that dinosaurs just you know decided to become birds eventually.
1: <laughs> uh, speaking of other versions of evolving gliding, we just recently talked about flying snakes, which uh, which is fascinating the way that they can. Uh, flatten their bodies out yeah. into a concave shape to create that kind of wing that they undulate in the air to to help yeah. uh, prolong their gliding period.
0: Yeah. And that's so cool because they do have, snakes have these really interesting muscle skeletal structures that allow them to contract their muscles and expand them in the act of swallowing food. So while I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I would assume that the that gliding those gliding snakes have kind of they use those same muscles that are so good at swallowing and pushing food down hmm. uh, through their very long uh, trachea and, and bodies to digest. They they can use that same those same kinds of uh, structures to be able to flatten themselves and achieve. The gliding structure. Do you do you guys know if that's that's the case?
1: No, I didn't. I haven't read anything about that. But that's a very good point. I I would l- assume that's probably true.
0: It seems like it is. It's kind of, but I I don't know for a fact.
1: Yeah. Uh, so speaking of feathered dinosaurs, do do you also get worked up when you see dinosaur movies and there's not a feather to be found?
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that here's the thing is I think this is such a good opportunity mm-hmm. uh, now that we know. I'm fine with classics like Jurassic Park that the dinosaurs don't have feathers because we just didn't know back then so that's fine but now we do know and people I hear people say like oh it would look so stupid and no (laughs) I don't think so no exactly birds don't look stupid they look amazing so can you imagine like a uh, a raptor with fully feathered it would look glorious Uh, and you know it's interesting Uh, there's this habit of Uh, artists who recreate animal images from fossils of doing what's called, I think it's called shrink wrapping where you ignore, you don't know muscle and fat tissue precisely. So there's a tendency to uh, underestimate how plump something is and how fluffy it is. So, uh, and I've seen, there's this really cool image online where this artist made examples of it by uh, working backwards from like a swan skeleton to oh, create, oh yes, I've seen this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to create that like swan-like animal, as if as if the swan skeleton were a dinosaur fossil, and and what it would look like if it was interpreted in the way that dinosaurs are, and it's horrifying. <laughs> and swans are lovely, so I feel like we should be giving, you know, just giving. Real dinosaurs have curves is what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. that, that Yeah, I never thought about that with even modern skeletons. But I, I think we're all three totally on the same page. And I think even if you're not going – to make them beautiful, if you're trying to make them terrifying, can you imagine? I, I think that the predators would be more frightening if they were covered in feathers. I mean, oh, imagine yeah. being eaten by a giant bird. That makes even less sense than eaten by a lizard. Oh, I mean, I yeah.
2: since since I was a kid, I've been I was always intrigued by these uh, paleo art illustrations of terror birds snatching up um, I forget the, the the scientific name, but the, the dawn horses, the miniature prehistoric horses. Mm-hmm. Just the idea of this already large bird eating small horses uh just filled me with dread and uh, and I would love to see well, like where are the terror bird movies it seems like like this is a an untapped uh, uh area of riches here
0: yeah i mean i i feel like if you try to imagine lying on your stomach and looking up at like a chicken yes <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> if you look at it from that perspective, it's actually kind of scary. They have those dead reptilian eyes, mm-hmm. sharp claws, and just this look of anger. There, there's a Werner Herzog quote about chickens about yes. how – yeah I've, I I can't from memory just do the exact quote, but it's something about how chickens are just so innately – Achingly stupid and mean. <laughs> he says,
1: "When you when you look into the eyes of the chicken, the, the immensity of the stupidity is is breathtaking."
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you, you if you make Werner Herzog feel despair, it's you've got something going on because right. that man is uh, is a nihilist to end all nihilism. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, Katie, do you have anything coming out soon on the show that we you, we, you specifically want people to watch out for and and listen when it uh, when it hits the feed?
0: Yeah, so I'm looking into evil in the animal and human world, and there's this really fascinating concept in criminal psychology called the dark tetrad, and I look <laughs> at the animals and humans that best exemplify this. Evil behavior, and it's it's really cool. It's, it's actually kind of metal, so I'm excited for it.
2: <laughs> and uh, can you uh, remind all of our listeners here uh, where they can find Creature Feature, when it publishes, and where they can find you on social media?
0: Yeah, so it publishes every Wednesday— uh, and you can find it on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, pretty much anywhere you can get your podcasts. Um, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and our website is Creature Feature Pod. Our Twitter is Creature Feet Pod. Not feet as in, you know, animal feet, <laughs> but feet as in they have achieved a great feat. Ah, <laughs>
1: gotcha. All right. Well, uh, it has been a delight to talk to you today, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: All right. So there you have it. Again, the show is Creature Feature. The host is Katie Golden. You can find them at CreatureFeaturePod.com. As for stuff to blow your mind, you can always find us at our mothership stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts. You'll find that cool store button at the top of the page. That's where you can go to our Tee Public page and buy some cool merch with our logo on it, with our cool uh, Skug King of the Rats design, or <laughs> our Cambrian Life logo, or of course uh, All Hail the Great Basilisk. These are all fine uh, uh, purchases you can especially, make, especially as we get into the holidays here. And it's a great way to support the show. And if you want to support the show in a way that doesn't cost you any money at all, simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so.
1: So yeah, thanks again to Katie for joining us today. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. For uh, a way to get in touch with us, you could email us. Uh, You can email us ideas for new episodes. You can email us feedback on this episode or any other. You can just email us to say hi, let us know where you listen from, how you found out about the show, all that kind of stuff at our account, BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.